Gaming, thank you all so much for coming on tonight. I'm just absolutely delighted. I, I still can't believe that I get to do this. I get to come here at, at night and just talk about my favorite stuff with my favorite people whenever I want, which is amazing. And one of the things is, as a lot of you have probably noticed recently, the internet can be a scary and kind of a mean place sometimes. As if you've probably really noticed this the past few weeks, for some reason. I won't go into any details. <laughs> but what I've always tried to do with the Irish Four, and I've seen other people do it, and it's really inspired me, is trying to make places, while the internet can have trolls and people who are mean and people who are really ignorant and people who don't listen to each other, it can also be a phenomenal way... I feel for, so attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> I came here to have a good time. <laughs> it can also be a phenomenal place for people to meet people with really specific, really nerdy, really interesting interests and share them in a, in a cozy way, in a nice way, in a friendly way, in a way that you don't always get in coffee shops, in bars, in work cafeterias. So tonight, one of the things I've found, two people in two in different ways have done something that I've tried to do, which is to make a very, very niche, but very wonderful and just beautifully crafted spaces in the internet for people to follow very specific interests, word nerds like me. And the first one is Terry O'Hayum. Terry, thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Excellent. Terry, why don't you tell us a bit about what you do? I run a blog that no one can pronounce. Well, yeah. I, I tried. I'm Vox Hibernacum. Vox Hibernacum. Yes. Vox Hibernacum. depending on what you went. Or in the 5th century, actually, probably would have been Vox Hibernacum. <gasps> That's right. Weni, Weedy, Weechi. Kind of like that. We, I did three years Latin school, as I keep telling Emer. Yeah. And, yes, uh, and our teacher, Mr. O'Sullivan, used to always say the V is pronounced as a W. And the letter that V. That also happens in Kerry, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just kind of thought of it there. There's a um, kind of what I, part I'm from in Kerry, there's a more rural town, and everything is just a W. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's fun. And just um, particularly when you think of BHs in Irish, can be Vs or Ws. So it's, you know, it all ties back to all our Irish. So Vox Hibirionica. Yeah. Uh, I picked the name. Uh, it sounds really intelligent. Everyone thinks I'm an awful lot more intelligent than I actually am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is. It's, it's the earliest phrase. I like to say this all the time on Twitter. It's the earliest articulation of an Irish identity. And it's in one of the early, well, the earliest Irish primary source for history. It's the writings of Patrick's. And it's what he calls, it's the first time somebody ever said collectively, the voice of the Irish Vox Hibirionicum. So that's why I, I called it that and went from there. So basically, it's really unintelligent. <laughs> An Irish voice. Oh, the voice of the Irish. Voice yeah. of the Irish. Yeah, collective. And so and what, what kind of period do you cover when you, in, your, in your research? In- I kind of jump around all the time. I mean, ostensibly, it's early medieval, um, but I'll, I'll go back to prehistory if I, if I want to, and sometimes current affairs and things like that. Yeah, I jump around all the time, but mostly early medieval. Mm-hmm. And so I know some of your research has covered St. Patrick himself, and he's been a, an interesting figure in that he's been appropriated for different people for different reasons. All the time, yeah, literally, all mm-hmm. the time. Um, not a lot of people know uh, the real story, although surprisingly everyone will know the, the guts of the real story. It's all basically true, what you heard in school, at church, growing up, the, the whole stolen, kidnapped as a slave, escapes and comes back as a missionary. Uh, mm-hmm. But the fact is he left two primary documents that still survive. They were copied into early Irish manuscripts very faithfully, very conservatively, and we have an awful lot of copies. Uh, awful lot, eight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> eight can be an awful lot, depending on what you're counting. One in Ireland and, and seven outside of Ireland. Uh, but the seven outside of Ireland are a lot more complete. The one in Ireland, which is the earliest one, is the least detailed one. They, they cut a load of the, the really good bits out. The one that shows Patrick as uh, human, mm. uh, as angry, 
as somebody who, uh, who wasn't accepted at all by fellow Christians, you know. So that was not really appropriate in the ninth century, you know, when they were saying, oh, Patrick, the super saint. Uh, and do these texts mention snakes? No. <laughs> Or shamrocks. Or shamrocks. Or leprechauns. Uh, I was, yeah, I wasn't expecting too much of no. that. So the, um, they do contain, though, here's, the, here's something you'd like. They do contain the earliest, also the earliest of everything, the earliest attempt at rendering an Irish word in all of literature. <gasps> to tell. It's the place of his captivity. He calls it the wood of Fucklet, which sounds... An, the, wo- the wood of Fucklet. The wood of Fucklet is how it's translated, much to the amusement and joy of every first-year university history student. You're not suggesting students have no, 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 a it's, filthy it's, sense of humour. Not at all, not <laughs> at all. The thing is, everyone's saying it wrong. It's actually two words. It should be something else completely. But I think it's, it's you oh. know, I always say, you know, Patrick couldn't give a Fucklet. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the ancient Irish expression, Fucklet anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and is, is Fucklet anywhere near Kirkpatrick? It's in Mayo. Okay. Uh, it's on the northwest, north coast of Mayo, uh, to the west of Kalala Bay, uh, and it still exists in Irish, Faux Hill. Oh. Yeah. But it's actually two words. It's originally in Old Irish. It's Faux. Everyone says Fuckler. It's wrong. It should be Faux and Chlut. Faux Chlut. Yeah, Faux Chlut. And it's almost in a way, I'd like to think it's almost a mistake. You can imagine him as a slave coming over here. And didn't speak Irish. He was here for six years as a teenager. He's probably learning the Irish. And, you, you know, like you see in films, you know, the montage of them learning the, yeah. the local languages and say, what's that over there? What do you call that? And I'd like to say he, he pointed to the wood and, you know, the difference between what do you call that or how do you say that? You know, mm-hmm. so you point to the tree and you might say, well, what's that? And you say a tree and you say, but well, what do you call it? And people might say, well, an oak. Oh. But he gets mixed up because foe means under. Clue means kind of covering, protective. So it's almost like an underwood, a covering wood, but it's an adjective. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to think he got it wrong. He thought that was the name of it, mm-hmm. but it's just the type of wood it is, you know. And that's the first earliest, earliest attempt at rendering Irish before Irish even exists. Fantastic. The, one of my favourite episodes of Give Up Your Alice Sins, which is just this, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's, it's um, inner city children in Dublin telling their favourite Bible stories or saints' lives, and they were recorded and brown bag films went ahead and animated them. It's just a charming series. But one of the ones that's favorites this is one of the ones that's my favorite is the one about St. Patrick. Mm. And there's one bit in the kid she's saying, and you know, and he trained to be a priest and you have to that takes eight years, no matter how smart you are. <laughs> <laughs> and did he spend eight years training? Did he go to Manuse so those things that didn't even exist then? If you believe the early medieval he spent thirty-three years on here and seventy-four years there and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spent a long time, he actually escapes and, and he kind of skips over that whole bit in his documents. Um, okay. So he, we do know he comes back. He's at least in middle age when he comes back. And we know that he's here at least several decades because he talks about a priest that he had fostered from infancy in okay. Ireland. Um, so, I mean, he was old by the time. And he says it in his writings. He says, I'm in old age. I'm writing this just before I die. You know, so he was old. He spent at least several decades here. How long he trained? Who knows? Who knows? I imagine it was a bit more casual back then. It's like, you're a priest. Go for it. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So there's a lot of, um, one of the things, Emer, you've, you've often spoken about in, in your own in, in interest in Old Irish is there's a lot of misconceptions about what Celtic Ireland and med- medieval Ireland was like. Yes. I mean... You said the C word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah, I heard it there and it was like nails on a chalkboard. It was like, please no. Um, see, um, that wasn't an accident. Yeah, yeah, I mean, case case in point, case in point. Um, <laughs> do you want to do it? <laughs> no, you go ahead. I'll talk about it. Okay. Um, 
basically, Irish isn't Celtic. Full stop. <laughs> Done. See you all later. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not... There wasn't as much of a Celtic invasion as we are led to believe, putting it that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I haven't looked at this in nearly five years. Um, but... Yeah, that's that's about as, as well as I can put it. Um, a lot of this, you know, drawn spirals and Celtic stuff is pulled out of someone's arse sometime in and around the 19th century, kind of, a lot of it. Um, and that was my thesis. That was actually probably my, my master's thesis. <laughs> yeah, I can see I, where you got it first. Yeah, I, I mean, I did. Um, and I don't know how. Um, I scanned my way through that one. But, um, yeah, a lot of what I look at is kind of late 19th, early 20th century conceptions and publications relating to the early medieval period that kind of Terry would deal with. And a lot of it is, um, you know, Celtic this and Celtic that and Celtic whiskey store and Celtic tourism and mm-hmm. Celtic this and whatever else. But um, no, it's medieval Irish and that's that. It's a really good point. I think Celtic, we should reclaim Celtic for what it is. It's a 17th or an 18th century invention and it belongs mm. It belongs in the early modern period, not, not yeah. back then. Exactly. Um, so that's kind of my favourite party piece to whip out on, on a Saturday night. Does that, not, um, does that not upset people who are deeply invested it, in their tattoos? It really does, yeah. Yeah. Oh, has, anyone got, has anyone got an Ogham tattoo? Come on, at least one of you does. If you do, they saw you coming. Yeah. <laughs> They're not admitting yet. Anyway, it was actually, um, I was at a staff party last summer at, the, at this stage, I'd say, and one girl, I'm good friends there. Like that, I, we only follow each other on Twitter because we were studying the same thing. And uh, she was over in Dublin doing a, the Celtic Studies summer school kind of a thing. Um, hate to drop the C word in there. But um, that's what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And we're over and we met up for a few drinks. Um, it just so happened that this staff party was going on near where she was staying. And at the time I was working in a hotel and we had a lot of um, staff from like um, Latin America, kind of South America. So one of the Brazilian lads was over and he was talking to her and he thought she was great and all this. And he was like, oh, so what do you study? And she was like, oh, I study, you know, Celtic civilization and a bit of medieval Irish, whatever else. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I am um, next week. I'm going getting this tattoo. And he had like, it's going to be like a Celtic cross and it's going to be something else. He's like, you know, all about my time here in Ireland because I'm having such a great time. And she's sitting there and she's like, <laughs> and she kind of looked at me she's like will you tell him or will I and I was like I'm, no <laughs> we'll let him at it we'll let him at it well I suppose and this is a thing this, the concept of authenticity it's something that people really look for in their lives and they sometimes look to older literature older civilizations and they don't find it or they stop looking when they find the thing that they think they like but, but there's more to I mean a lot of your research has, has a lot of the stuff I found in your in the blog and in the, in the other writings you've done has been so different from what we are led to believe about um, older periods of Ireland, older stages of the church. Even people are constantly, anytime I tweet a word in Irish with a V in it, like, oh, there's no Vs in Irish. <laughs> and the first word about Ireland has a V in it. Well, it doesn't actually, it's you, Vox. Oh, you're not even well, you. Yeah, yeah. But it is, yeah. But yeah. And, that, and there was a Latin alphabet before, there was a Celtic hour, a Gaelic alphabet, yeah. even. But that's one of the, the, the cool things about early uh, medieval Ireland. I mean, we have to invent Irish as a foreign language first 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're speaking it obviously for, for a long time beforehand. Patrick's attempt, as I said, was his attempt using Roman characters, and he's kind of like trying to get the folk uh, trying to write it down at the yeah. way it sounds. I, ironically enough, an awful lot of our place names survive because of the same thing in 12th century Norman scribes, uh, early modern plantations, and stuff that they just said, What's the name of that field? What is it? Say it again. And they literally spelled it out phonetically, and mm-hmm. we can reconstruct that now. Um, even though it's spelled horribly and anglicised, but it still encompasses an awful lot of the Irish arrow sounds, uh, which is something really cool. Mm. But when our Latin verse comes here, everyone has to learn, or the priests and the the ecclesiastics, have to learn Latin as a foreign language first, writing it, if not speaking it, obviously for liturgical reasons, then they need to apply it to the Irish sounds, Mm -hmm. and then that's how Irish comes. So it... You know, everything, Irish is a magpie language when it comes to that, in terms of literacy, in terms mm. It was built from the best parts of every language of the fall yeah. of the Tower of Babel. There we go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> instead, I think my version is much better. But, uh, <laughs> mm, basically, the, there is a text that goes on about the, kind of the foundation of the Irish language and where it comes from. And it's to do with, you know, the Tower of Babel. And I remember telling this at the, the Blind Boy podcast and it was like, oh, you know, like the young fellas. And now I'm like, I can't really call them the young fellas. Uh, but basically, <laughs> people were building a tower up to God. And God is like, absolutely not. So God is like, how am I going to stop these people from reaching me? So what he does is he changes the language that everyone is speaking and no one can communicate. And if they can't communicate, they can't build the tower to visit God. And um, the text kind of then goes on to say that the Irish language was then picked and chosen from the best bits of each language that was created by God at the Tower of Babel. And it just happened to come all the way from the Tower of Babel across to Ireland unscathed. And that's what we have. Just like that. Just like that. Just like that. Um, Mm. So yeah, a load of young fellas building a tower. Um, <laughs> and youngful is a technical term here. It is <clears throat> because yeah. an awful lot of, uh, of of history from these point stages was written by youngful in monasteries, overwhelmingly, or uh, the actual in, in religious surroundings mm-hmm. would probably mm-hmm. be the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because yeah. I didn't realise when I was doodling on my copybook. And when I was a student in school, that I was effect- effectively replicating something that the, that the book of Kells now is. Teenagers yep, tra- transcribing stuff <laughs> yeah. and doodling on the side because they were bored. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I encourage everyone to always doodle because you never know what it's going to find. I mean, there, mm-hmm. we, we know so much. Like one of the earliest, largest corpuses of Irish words encompass doodles in a mm-hmm. European manuscript. I mean, originally written in, in Northern Ireland somewhere, probably Bangor. Mm-hmm. And they're just, it's a, it's a Latin uh, gr- grammar text and they're literally notes as they're coming, but they're literally uh, writing again in Latin, but thinking in Irish and they're, they're scribbling uh, mm-hmm. uh, in Irish. And we know so much, like over half of the glosses in the St. Christian calls. Uh, oh, um, the Christian Inc- glosses, yeah. yeah. Including some of my favourite ones. Uh, and everyone, I, this goes out on Twitter every now and again, it gets hundreds of retweets. Somebody at one stage was so hungover they wrote at the top of the margin the early medieval equivalent of dying (laughs) (laughs) in Ogham (laughs) that's how bad they were (laughs) but what everyone doesn't know if you go back 15 pages you see the same word in Irish (gasps) latert dying (laughs) (laughs) they love the sesh Yeah. Hmm. yeah 
or I'll say like a really productive hangover where they were just trawling through pages. There's but, a great, um, and then it just was absolute learned mess. there's another great one um, where somebody's talking about it. it's Latin. Uh, I have to say this very carefully, pedo, not the other one, pedo, <laughs> pedo. pedestrian feet walking and stuff like that. But it's also, in, in Latin, means I fart. Oh. Pedo. Well. <laughs> and they write in Irish afterwards, <laughs> bregum. <laughs> <laughs> and then they quote Horace, a kind of a, a famous yeah. uh, line from Horace about, you know, yeah. uh, farting so hard your arse is going to crack open. Like, you know? yeah. So they're, they're sort of playing around with the Latin words just for the hell of it. And I'm reading it, you know, centuries later, and I'm cracking my ass at it. <laughs> and I just know that whoever, you know, they're writing it, and probably, you know, someone else's next week is reading it, and <laughs> trying to get them in trouble, you know? It's great. It sounds so, like my Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, yeah. So you can almost imagine a hashtag in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Or wherever the, the, the 7th century equivalent was. Yeah. Terry, how did you get interested in all this? Uh, went back to college as a mature student. Um, just wanted to do uh, an arts degree. Always wanted to do archaeology and history, mainly archaeology. And halfway through uh, uh, the degree, I realised just how cool... Uh, archaeology and history was together, I realised we could the earliest we could get back to at any certainty is text and archaeology together, which in this part of the world is early medieval Ireland, and it's the sexiest archaeological period. It's the richest, mm-hmm. it's the most with monuments, uh, and I just thought, absolute no-brainer, so let's combine the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I kind of look at history in an archaeological way, and look at archaeology in a historical way, with a bit of etymology thrown in. It's class. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, I mean, I did it and then I sold out and I worked a corporate job, but Mm -hmm. um, you're the one still sticking at it, so fair play to you. Again, I have a day job as well, you know, just... uh, It's a great thing too, and you mentioned there that you've got that there's these home letterings, there's these old Irish, there's modern Irish too, or how it relates to modern Irish, and there's Latin. That's a a fairly large skill set required for something like this. Or language-wise, anyway. Absolutely. And, and again, I keep going back right to the start. I mean, sometimes I'm mm-hmm. probably the, the wrong person to have in here. I'm always getting back just before stuff starts happening. That's what we fascinating. And here's mm-hmm. the thing that no one ever really, you know, everyone talks about Irish and, you know, comes over with Latin and you have to do that first before they can develop written Irish, even though it's spoken. I mean, the earliest physical evidence we have, other than, I mean, Patrick's sort of attempt is a later copy, but he's writing in the 5th century. And around about the same time as in the 5th century, we have uh, Ogham inscriptions on stones, and they are the earliest evidence for, for primitive Irish mm-hmm. that we can tell. But the very fact that they're there is fascinating. An awful lot of people don't realise. Literacy is right next door to Ireland for four centuries, mm-hmm. from Roman Britain onwards, and the Irish couldn't be arsed with it. <laughs> <laughs> no interest whatsoever. Yeah. Writing, Jesus like. Yeah. What would you be doing with the writing, like? Yeah. Until some stage in the mid to late fourth century or fifth century, and it's, it's to do with Christianity. They mm-hmm. need to be able to read. But what's the first thing you do if you're in Ireland? Do you write accounts? Do you write Christian? Well, yeah, they probably did, but we don't have any surviving. What we do have are three hundred plus big feck off stones, mm-hmm. and they are carving their because right from the start they realise that Latin can't get the sounds of Irish right, so they kind of develop their own sort of way. They carve it into stones right along the top and right on the other, and they put it into the landscape. Mm-hmm. The very first thing Irish people try to do with literacy is to write in 3D in time and space. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? In 12-foot big ogham mm-hmm. stones. And being, that's incredible. You know, mm-hmm. that's the way... And, and people, I don't think, realise this is just... It's obviously some sort of hang-up in late prehistory into just how they thought of what this magic was. You know, let's transport words and memory and names uh, and it's mostly male names, but male ancestor figures, put them on a big rock, stick them in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's fantastic. 
And we were always told in school that Om or Agam, as you pronounce it, maybe more, more accurate to the time, it was mostly gravestones. And that's, people just assumed that because that was like, their understanding of what's written on stones today. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're half, right? I mean, they're, some of them may be gravestones. An yeah. awful lot of them uh, have been moved, so we're not exactly sure where they are. And if, if they are in the same position as they were, um, it's, it's, it's kind of hard uh, to dig underneath them now. Mm. And an awful lot of them were moved. Um, the smaller ones and the more portable ones definitely move. I think I remember reading something, I think over 50% of them have been either moved or are located within a church site, mm. uh, which kind of puts a pain to the whole Ogham is pagan and, and druidic and all that bullshit. <laughs> uh, it's, not, mm. it's to do with early Christian, and it's to do with um, people copying what's coming in from Roman Britain, which is this whole memorial stones. I would think of them not so much as gravestones, but as memorial stones. Yeah. So you write your ancestor or the person that commemorates, and it's usually a formulaic word. It's the son of X, the son of Y, the son of Z, and there are different variations of it. That's the earliest sort of uh, like orthodox uh, and in a way, they're doing it at specific locations. They're probably borders. Yeah, uh, it's almost as if you're marking your territory, you're marking your land, and you're 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 putting your ancestors into the memory. But somebody else can come along later on and read it and say, "Oh, this is the land because it's dark is commemorated here, and Emer mm-hmm. is commemorated there, and it's my father." For you can literally point. They act as witnesses to the landscape. You know what I mean? This is our territory. Mm. Kind of like how a dog writes. I was just going to say, I, like <laughs> a dog is not a tree. Wasn't going to go there. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And stuff. And just, there's other things, there's, in terms of misunderstandings about medieval Ireland and what maybe Ireland was like in the pre-Strongbow age, what do you think are the most noxious and most off-the-wall or that are widespread? That What would you like to shake? If you just want to shake someone and say, don't stop saying this, you're wrong. Oh, druids. There's yeah. no druids. We have no evidence for druids. Archaeological evidence for druids historical evidence for druids they're made up by early christians who aren't really early i heard a good one actually yesterday the day before i was up for a walk and uh, as i was doing so i realized i was turning into my mother uh out for a walk uh, around the golf course and um i was kind of um having earphones in and i was like do you know what i'm gonna really like embrace my mother i'm gonna take my earphones out and i'm gonna listen to the silence and uh, I was having a good time anyway. And uh, next thing, the, this group of three uh, women walked past me. You know, they were the type, they're maybe in like you know, their late 50s, their early 60s. You know, the kids have all moved out. They drink wine in the afternoons. They play golf with the gals and they go on hotel weekends away, kind of a thing. And they were trying I to. I feel so attacked right now. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they were trying to like out posh each other in this conversation uh, through the golf course. I was like, right. And um, next thing anyway, one of them was like, yeah, so you're in Glastonbury. And I was like, of course you were in Glastonbury. And uh, next thing she was like, yeah, so we're climbing this mountain. It's just outside Glasto. And I was like, oh, it's, it's Glasto now, is it? Right, okay. And uh, then she was like, yeah, see, this druid led us up there. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and at this point, I was like, I'm, I'm too invested in this now. I can't stop. I was nearly following these women. <laughs> And uh, she was like, yeah, so like this tree. He lit this fire and we all like fell into him up the mountain. And I was like, I'm going to light a fire somewhere here in a minute. And I was like, this woman genuinely believes that in, I don't know, sometime in the 2000 recent, um, <clears throat> that a druid led her up a mountain in Scotland. And I was like, and. Mm. Because okay, the there, dru- there, there is though there is modern druids there, there are modern druids but are there any yeah, ancient druids no, no. 
No. Again, Druidism in its modern form and all everything, mm. that's invented again in the 17th century, you know? Because yeah. um, in Bishop O'Brien's dictionary, which is one of the, the pre precursors to the precursors of Deneen and written in the 18th century. Deneen is class. Deneen is class. Yeah. And the, um, he mentions that, the, that in, he's referring to Druids and he mentions that the pyramids, I think, were, were built by Druids. Oh, and well, they were, yeah. But he's obviously using Druid as a general term yeah. for, pa uh, for pagan, um, pa pagan clergy. And then other people have thought, and it's possible that if, as far as those people existed in Ireland, there is no reason to believe the ones who were in Cork had, had anything in common with the ones in Mayo, <laughs> if they even existed at all, which they didn't. Well, the, uh, I mean, <laughs> look, you're saying there wasn't any ritual specialists in prehistory. Yeah. Of course there was. Yeah. You look around, you look at the, the stone in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, and we have so much commonality of design of stuff from all over the Atlantic facade. You know what yeah. I mean? Is that part of something shared... Cosmo cosmological belief, absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. um, druids are. I mean, th the earliest mention you get from them again later, early medieval, they call them magi in Latin. Oh yeah, magicians because they're modelling everything on the Old Testament, and it has to be Simon Magus magi. magi. Everything is a magician, magician, magician. Druid even comes later, even in Irish. I think the earliest is an is an eighth century gloss. Um, Something, yeah. But uh, uh, so. Yeah, that's that's they need to invent uh, uh, a pagan past that they don't remember, they don't have any contact with, uh, in order to model themselves in the Old Testament and then to have the New Testament come along in Ireland, you know. So yeah. everyone, what everyone thinks is pagan, what yeah. everyone loves about that, oh, there's pagan in this, oh, look at the echoes of that, oh, pretty fantastic. Bollocks. That's all early Christian metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all early Christian metaphor. Now, if you really want proper paganism. Yeah. Um, if you want to call it Druidism, that's fine. There's no way of authenticating it. But you should go into prehistory, look at the archaeology, mm -hmm. uh, look and see where they are, look and see how they're built, look and see what they point to. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much the closest you can get. But no, archae no, no archaeologist will ever tell you for definite the way all sorts of modern Druids do on their websites, where they trust <laughs> dogs on strings, mm -hmm. uh, so they call them fruitarians. They will tell. I don't well, mind people living their lives. But yeah, know? but I mean, it's an important ritual when you're, you're opening a big bottle of Scrumpy Jack in a field with your pals and maybe under a bridge. It's fine. Look, it's, it's, it's a Druid ritual. It's a fantastic way to live your life and, and good luck. It's, it's fantastic. It's the ones that. It only annoys me when they start claiming continuity and they start saying, oh, arcane knowledge, and they start charging people several hundred euro for a course, you know? <laughs> for the people yeah. who'll be listening to this uh, podcast and didn't see what just happened I just made uh, a V yeah. <laughs> which is actually pronounced like a W <laughs> walk off <laughs> before we move on to our next guest would anyone like to have any questions for Terry in case I'm asked what tattoo do you recommend <laughs> what tattoo yes. um, mm. I go for something cultural that actually exists. So <laughs> I say go with Maori or Indian or something where there's, you know, or, the oldest you can probably go back is uh, Otzi the Iceman. Do you know, hear, you've heard of him? He's a Bronze Age uh, figure dug up in the Alps about 15 years ago. He's the most studied archaeological specimen now. He was uh, very well preserved. Uh, he, he had died horribly. I think he had an arrow in the back. He was really old. He was flat, but they, they got all his gear as well. Uh, he had, you know, 15 different types of wooden implements and things like that. But the most amazing thing was he had tattoos on him. Uh, and some people say it's for acupuncture. Some people just say it was kind of marked. But, I mean, that's something authentic. Or you can look up Scythian tattoos. We get Scythian bog bodies over in the, you know, the Russian steppes and stuff like that. And they've got 
in a way, you know the, all the young fellas nowadays? Young fellas. With the big arms, and yeah. they have the whole sleeve tattoos going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That pretty much looks like what the Scythians used to wear, you know? So that's pretty authentic. You can't get a job as a barber in Dublin without one of those in your arm. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty much. How do, you, how do you spell that, just in case anyone decides to Google that? Scythian. Scythian. <laughs> S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N. Scythian, I think. Excellent. This is it. Like, how do you say that? How do you spell that? What's that? What's that word? Can you say that again? Can I try and sound it out? <laughs> mm-hmm. Any other questions for Terry? Oh, hey. Uh, yeah, just going back to the tattoo thing. Could you um, post out the I'm dying in Ohm so the rest of us can get a I'm proper Ohm <laughs> tattoo? Are you going to get I'm dying in Ohm tattoo or an Ogham tattooed in your arm? <laughs> may, I may do. I may here's, do. <laughs> here's, here's the thing. It's hardcore. Ogham isn't, everyone thinks Ogham is a language like that and you, and you can transliterate words and phrases and stuff like that. I mean, you, you can. But it's make up. It's no one ever did that back in the day, do you know? Um, what I could do is just say it in old Irish or, or, or write it in old Irish and you can get that tattooed in, you know? And then I'll throw in the Algam one as well. All right? Mm. For a small fee. <laughs> okay. I have a quick question here. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. I told you it was pronounced as. <laughs> is it this is Derek's mom, everyone. <laughs> Big hello to Derek's mom. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I won't come to any more of these. I'm in so much, I'm, I'm in so much trouble now. Yes, she's the blonde lady in the white top. I could start on about you, Derek, but I didn't. Actually, yes, please tell us an embarrassing story. Well, in Mother Folklore, he said I had to drag him up. That's, putting it, that's actually putting it very gently. Anyway, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering how... Or why you pronounce? I, I would have thought it was pronounced Oam, and I would have. That, and why do you pronounce it Ogham? Or what's the difference? I I make a point of doing it um, because for that same reason, because everyone calls it Oam, uh, and people probably think about it written. They think O G H A M because that's how it sort of reads in English. Now, you're the early Irish person. How would how would they have said it in early Ireland? Ogham is what I, yeah. any time that I was in university dealing with it, um, it was always Ogham. Yeah. It's so, what most people in archaeology say as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, someone would accept Ogham, but you're kind of a bit like, mm, all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose if you were, if you're pronouncing the word as a, as a spelt using modern Irish, in particular Munster Irish pronunciation, you'd be softened the GH, mm. but archaeologists don't do that. No. Okay. <laughs> Archaeologists are hard bastards. <laughs> Stuff. Anyone else? Or? Oh, oh hello. Hello. Hi. Yes. I'm just wondering. Um, so now I've got only got a very little knowledge about it, but like you know, with early 20th century kind of nationalism and how um, kind of you know uh, writers kind of you know developed the idea of uh, you know Celtic nationalism and all that kind of thing, is there much? Um, is there much that they ever got right? In t- you, you, you don't know. Well, like, like, anyway, is there much that they, they got right about kind of you know the, the, the lives of like you know, the early um, kind of Irish you know missionaries or, or um, even the, the language or anything or culture or anything like that? Um, that actually that's, comes from the records. That's actually a really good question. A lot of my master's thesis was all this, but mine was more so from a literary perspective. Like I looked at W. B. Yeats, and I kind of ripped him apart for about nine months of my life. And um, I looked at the text that he published, uh, The Only Jealousy of Emer. Um, and I basically looked at that in comparison to the early Irish text, Shirley Um And at a 
ground level, if you look at like the plot and how it goes, you're like, okay, fair enough. Like he's not, he's not entirely wrong, but it's the little bits that he's missed out on, which would have made the early Irish text so kind of politically important. Like everything that you have written from an early Irish period is, it's politically charged basically. Um, and, you know, you've got like these little nuances where you've got like a woman will say something or, you know, you won't, if you're used to reading, you know, modern literature, you see a woman and, you know, there's, she's speaking in verse and you're like, okay, fair enough. But if you look at this in um, an early medieval context, in early medieval literature, you're like, whoa, all right, okay, what's happening here? Because women um, never got, got the opportunity to speak in those verses. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, female speech is a, it's a big, broad topic. Uh, my sleeves are very sassy there. They were like, woo. Uh, <laughs> but it's a big, broad topic. And basically, um, it, like women had no sort of legal standing with their speech and everything else. But um, so the Shergley and Cullen text, um, the original early Irish text, you've got a lot of speech from this character whose name actually would be Ever, E-M-E-R, would have been pronounced Ever, which is now my name, Emer, which is also wrong, which is nice and pleasant. Um, it's kind of reassuring in a way that if everyone's getting it wrong, maybe, you know, yeah. you can go easier on yourself. Yeah, it's all right. We'll, <laughs> we'll say nothing. Um, but uh, yes, that's what I kind of looked at. I looked at how he essentially butchered a text while keeping it the same almost as what it was, kind of. Okay. But also didn't at all. <laughs> so it's, it's complicated. Like, you'd need to understand the cultural context, kind of, in which it was mm-hmm. written. Because um, obviously a lot of Yeats was a lot of, you know, politics and publicanism and uh, Yeats being Yeats. Um, and he kind of imposed these ideas and these theories onto his writing, which these texts themselves, these early Irish texts, were written under a different cultural context. They were written under a difficult, a, a different, rather, socio-political influence and things like that. So it's just, it's a big, it's a big mishmash and you'll never really get to the end of it if you if you try. Can I just so, come in quickly? Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Just, just to answer from, from my perspective, there's an awful lot they got wrong. There's, off, there's also an awful lot they got really, really right. There's, we still use stuff like that, books and sources, I mean, I still reference people with 1850s, 1860s. Sometimes they are so incredibly spot on, you cannot believe they did it back then before modern textual criticism. There's a guy who wrote about place names in Connacht and he's still right. Uh, and he didn't have computers like I have now and, and, and stuff like that. The one thing you've got to remember, in, in terms of even before Yeats, an awful lot of these Irish texts are translated and made popular in English for the first time in the late 19th century. So th- that popularism... Uh, is sort of good and bad in a way because it does lead to what Emer was talking about in terms of it, it being bastardised within an inch of its life uh, and it sort of culminates in websites and that whole Celtic thing nowadays that people want to believe in and uh, are attracted to. Uh, and that's fine. But it actually does stem from that time in the 19th century. They thought they were, they were, they were doing uh, okay. Some of them really, really were. And some of them were just kind of messing around for their own political and national things. But they're the shoulders we stand on because without them, I and mean, we still, I still use 19th mm. century texts. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they're all freely available now online, too. That's a great thing. There's a lot of good stuff there, yeah. yeah. Sure is. Terry, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks. Uh, I think it's been really informative. Cheers. Cheers. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.
This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. 